That's this one too. Friendship, friendship, making memories. Podcasting is for life. Friendship is forever. Okay. Podcasting. Pos- Podcast. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> hey, Steve. Hey, Richie. Boo. Ah, <laughs> that's right. It's our Halloween spooktacular. Oh, is that the best sound effect you're going to bring in? I might add more if no, I probably won't. <laughs> no, you should. Like when I say when I want now after I finish this sentence, there should be some rain noises. And then maybe some thunder. And then now I think that actually you're just not going to have anything and I'm just going to be saying these things with nothing in the background. I could tell that's what you were thinking. (laughs) I was actually thinking, could I get the sound of a chicken or a cow that I can put in after you say those things so you sound like a fucking idiot? (laughs) Look, this is what happens. I put all these things into your terrible, terrible hands and you can do whatever you want with it. And the reason that I can see what you're thinking is because we're doing a lab in-person episode. Yeah, yeah, it's another reunion episode. And we always touch. <laughs> yeah, we always touch. Which oh, is man, why didn't you wash your hands? It's all sticky. <laughs> yeah, we're doing, a, we're doing a, a reunion episode. I'm back in Ireland and we are down in my parents' house, out in the middle of nowhere where there's no internet to be seen. No. Not a single kilobyte for miles around. That's the perfect place to record a podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's just, this is this podcast just for us. It's not going to go online because I literally can't put it there. <laughs> you have to drive it to the internet. Here you go. Oh man, excellent. So yeah, this episode's going up on Halloween. So we're going to try and make this one extra spooky. That being said, I actually came across a new story that is extra scary, but specifically for podcast hosts. Oh God. So, yeah. so you know Adobe, the guys who make Photoshop and yeah. the literally the recording software we're using right now, they're working on a thing called Project Voco. It's, it's a piece of software where if it, you give it enough of a voice sample, like you feed it recorded vocal lines, like 20 minutes or so of it, it can recreate the person's voice. So if you're doing a recording like this and someone messes up a word, you can literally highlight the section, type in what they should actually have said and it will replace it. You feed it enough lines and it'll actually, w- within a certain degree of accuracy, recreate that person's voice quite, quite closely. And that's only the initial version. You know what I mean? Like as time goes on, that's going to get more and more. So what you're saying is, is that I, I don't actually exist. I'm, I'm just a script that you've invented to. Yeah. Oh this my is my God. big reveal. I'm having like oh, Blade Runner. Am I, yeah. am I real? Oh shit, or? he's achieving sentience. Okay guys, sorry. I'm going to have to go to the theme music because I'm going to have to shut him down. I have to shut him down. Oh God, theme music, theme music. Am I real? We'll we'll get to that. We'll we'll deal with that uh, at the end of the episode. Okay. So we've got a super spooky subject to talk about today. But before we get to that, is there any news? Is there any updates happening in the world? Yeah, there's a few things going on. Uh, We're recording on Saturday the 28th. 28th. And I don't know what will have happened by the time the episode goes out on the 31st. But as of now, Catalonia declared independence. Yeah. Because that. They knew that the Spanish Madrid government was going to impose direct rule upon Catalonia. So built into the Spanish constitution is a mechanism for the central government to take back the autonomy that was built into the constitution for these regions. And as like the final response now to the independence referendum that we were talking about before, Mm -hmm. that's still been going on for the past six or seven weeks, they've gone ahead and essentially declared the Catalonian government as illegitimate and legal. And Illegitimate and legal. Illegal. Oh, illegal. Illegal. And they have appointed the deputy prime minister of Spain as basically she's now the, the governor of Catalonia. Really? Yeah. And the Catalonian 
regional governments who have been pushing this whole independence movement have responded by saying, we're now officially an independent country and we're going to start taking measures to, because you've got to get this right because it's all legal, legal mumbo jumbo. Mm. They want to, shit, I didn't write it down. <laughs> it's uh, like I'll just wing part. it. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 okay, we can just wing it. Yeah, go yeah on. I'm just going to wing it. They want to basically transfer all legal responsibilities of governance from Spain to Catalonia. And the only problem is, is that no one else in the world is actually going to give them recognition, except for perhaps like, I don't know, Kosovo, who is mm. also a non-recognized nation. Are we going to give them recognition? Ireland? Nope. No, I mean like you and I. Uh, I would love to. It's, it's what and politics. What's uh, our yeah. official stance? Catalonia, you guys have got the what and politics seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> You are now a nation state. Congratulations. Congratulations. Your you certificate can, is in the post. You can take this MP3, put it onto a CD and walk up to the UN and say, let us in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to be that easy, unfortunately, no. but if it, if it could be, it would be good for them. Mm-hmm. So basically now it's going to be really weird. Okay. So the Spanish essentially, if, if Catalonia continued to act as if they are a government, they are committing treason. Right. And what's it called? Like secession. They're essentially doing what the Confederacy did in the American Civil War. Right. What the Irish Revolutionary Movement and Sinn Féin did in the Irish Independence Movement. Mm -hmm. And what all these other breakaway nations have done. And usually what happens is that leads to war. Right. But the thing is, is that Catalonia is is a modern independence democratic movement like the SNP in Scotland. They haven't got guns associated with the thing at all. The thing about breakaway movements is that you can't be a country unless other countries recognize you as a country. Because I mean, hey, Richie, can you get Ireland and show it to me? Like right now? That's a field. I'm pointing at the window. Yeah, that's a garden. Shit. I have a a globe in there. (laughs) You can get the globe. You're just going to point at a landmass and it was surrounded by water. Yeah, the, our country. <laughs> is it though? Because oh, shit. there's actually two countries on that island. So uh, what's Ireland? You've perple- is this like a, is this a philo- more of a philosophical? It's not even question? philosophical. It's actually like um, in political uh, theory, it's called constructionism. So it's like right. kind of, it's kind of like the postmodernist kind of thing of like you need to think about the psychology and and the yeah. Basically, it's more than just a landmass. It's more than just a geography kind yeah, of yeah. Because obviously it has to be because you know two thousand years ago there was no such thing as. Ireland or European right. nation states. Even a, a one hundred and fifty years ago, there was no such thing as these things. Empires was the was the was the, the fun stuff back then. Yeah. So, unless other countries actually say, "Okay, we recognise your right to govern this little stretch of the Iberian Peninsula, and we recognise your borders and your your right to do trade deals and tax your people," then they can't really be a country. So, Kosovo is another good example. After the the Bocklands War, there, um, the like Western powers recognize Kosovo as a breakaway state of Serbia, mm-hmm. but Russia is allied with Serbia, so they don't recognize Kosovo. Uh, so it's kind of sitting in like that eighty percent halfway house where it's nearly a fully recognized state, but because Russia, who have like big international credibility, sure. don't recognize it, and probably China as well, because right. China don't like recognizing breakaway movements because they have lots of them that could potentially break away. So so Catalonia just doesn't have any of this recognition from anyone? Not from anyone because... Will they get it? No. The EU do not want to... They can't recognize right. a, 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 like a breakaway region of one of its member states because the EU has to represent Spain's legitimacy. So yeah. it's going to be weird. If the Spanish government go ahead and arrest all these leaders, that's mm. that will probably just inflame the, yeah. the demand for independence. Christ. So I think we... <laughs> Ted's crying outside. <laughs> Ted, our producer slash Labradoodle, is whimpering outside the door because he, he he can't get in to his master, Steve. 
Um, Actually, um, I'm, he's the master. He's <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. He wants something. Okay. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. We'll, we'll, we will. Keep, and we'll we, keep updating that. Yeah, we will do a proper episode on independence movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, UK and the Brexit shit still going on. Still going on? Still Brexit? Yeah, the problem with the Brexit thing is that the government keeps... <laughs> here's, on, here's a problem with Brexit. Settle in, guys. Here's Steve's hot take. The, well, it's, it's pretty much most straight-thinking people, because obviously if they agree <laughs> with me, they're straight-thinking. Um <laughs> They keep the government keep on the UK government keep on getting hammered for like not specifying what their red line is and what they would actually do to walk away with a no deal. And yeah. sometimes if they even suggest that they're willing to go with a no deal, then people say, oh, my God, you can't say you're going to go with a no deal. Mm. These negotiations are going on in the back room and it's going on between like a handful of British civil servants and politicians and a handful of European British uh, civil servants and politicians. Mm. If they were to tell people like, okay, 100%, we would not take this, we would not do that. Well, then they've automatically given up their cards in the negotiating table. Yeah. So like, why, they just can't do that. Right. So the problem is, is that these negotiations have to go on in secret for a couple of months while simultaneously having the entire world watching them and criticizing what they have no idea about what's going on. Yeah. Oh man, that's really weird. So the only way to really do it would be to go, everyone shut up. Everyone shh, just, just, just shut shush, up. Shush, shush. And we will come and tell you what the result is. But yeah. obviously that's not really good because if you have an interest in wanting it to see go one way, you're not, then you, and they, whatever comes out at the end isn't, you're not going to agree with. Yeah. So you, everyone's trying to using, using this time to actually try and influence each side and to give, to get what result they want. Mm. The tensions are pretty high and the possibility of a no-deal Brexit are is very tangible and, and possible. Mm. It would be bad. It would be bad. You wouldn't have any I, legal I, right <laughs> to work and live in the nation you presently live and work in. Jesus. So maybe you should start. I'll keep an eye on that. You, you keep an eye on that for me. Keep will, me posted. Yeah, Just keep WhatsApping know. me. What's going on? The USA. Trump USA. Is still, he's still doing his thing. Of course he is. What's he doing now? Uh, he's fighting with the widows of deceased oh, military so- veterans. <sighs> Jesus Christ. This whole thing is just really, really uncomfortable and, and sickening and horrible. And actually, I do have a little bit of sympathy for the Trump administration on this one. So The administration, not Trump himself. To a certain extent, Trump himself as well, because he's in a terrible position where he actually has to call the like the family, mem- the brief family members of soldiers who have died in combat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just mo- out in Niger, wasn't it? There it was, was in Niger yeah, that this yeah. operation happened. I think three soldiers died and yeah. it's only over one African-American sergeant who this whole scandal has happened. So apparently he chose to phone the family, which isn't always what the presidents do because even like at the height of the of the conflicts in Iraq and Af- Afghanistan, if the president had to call a family member, they'd be doing oh. that four or five times a day. Yeah, it'd be a full-time it would, job. <laughs> it would be a, like, yeah, and it, like between the psychological effect of having to talk to these people mm. and also not all family members want to necessarily hear from the president at that time. It's oh, not, if they feel like their president's responsible or... Well, not even that, but like it's a family tragedy. Yeah. N- not like it's, you're, you are essentially politicizing what is a personal discomfort. Yeah. So... That's what Donald Trump's chief of staff, um, General Kelly, said. Mm-hmm. He actually, and his his son died in one of the conflicts. He didn't get a phone call from Obama. He got a letter. Everyone gets a letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he his advice to the president was, "Don't call." Yeah. But Donald Trump wanted to call. Okay. And the problem is, the phone call apparently didn't go so well. No. Because these, it's always going to be awkward. And um, they claimed that he that he didn't really remember his name, and that he also said he knew what he was getting into. Apparently, when he said he knew what he was getting into, he was repeating what John Kelly had told him because it's true. Right. Soldiers do know what they're getting into. Yeah. Of course, you do not don't tell, don't that, to tell a, that to a grieving widow. No. The, the whole thing exploded even more. So first, Donald Trump also said, I'm the best president at telling people about and comforting families about their aggrieved families, which is ridiculous. Yes. That's not, not something you brag about. Of course. <laughs> so, and then the other thing is that the Cong- a Congress and a Democratic Congresswoman was in the car on, and listening to the call on speakerphone and she told the press what the contents of the call was, mm-hmm. which 
is not a nice thing either. No. So then it publicized it even more. Donald Christ. Trump responded to her because he can't, he can never take the high road and step down and take something on the chin. He has to respond. Mm-hmm. And now it's got to the point where Donald Trump is actually trying to correct what the widow is saying that happened. Oh my God. And it's just on and on and I on. I kind of think of a more stressful thing to add on top of a, yeah. a death like that in the family. That's... It's just really unfortunate and I don't think it would be happening if it was any other president except for Donald Trump. <laughs> but it's just, it's horrible. It's horrendous. Anyway, President Xi of China, um, the Communist Party in China held their five yearly conference to where they get together and basically tell each other that they're all doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, he solidified his grip on power that he got five years ago even more to the point that he got to put his political philosophy into the constitution of China, which only Mao before had the chance to do so. Oh. Puts them right up there with one of the most powerful leaders that China has had in the modern era. Yeah. Um, he brought out his new cabinet. So they, these are like his new team that that like um, they that people could potentially see a successor coming in or basically just his boys that are going to go around and do his will. Um, they're all old Chinese men. So sexist. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of diversity ages. going on there. And not only that, but they all, they all dye their hair black and try to keep the exact same hairstyle. Oh, really? It's really weird looking. Yeah. Oh man, I'll like, put pictures in the show notes. Yeah, it's like the, if you put in like Chinese communist ruler hair, it's like, it's pretty much just like a Lego hat that you just stick bloop. on them. Yeah. Some of the, actually in fairness. Wait, Legos don't go bloop. <laughs> bloop. <laughs> In fairness to G, he has he has changed things a little bit. Some of his guys are bald with grey hair. So okay. yep, he's changing things up there. We're we're finally moving on in yeah. Chinese politics. So we do have a, a whole episode coming up soon dedicated to China and we yeah, will touch on this that. more. But it, let's just say briefly that things that go on in China are very important and very mm-hmm. worth keeping an eye on. So Agreed. we'll try and do that. Yeah. Uh, final piece of news. Did you see that they released like 2000 documents relating to the JFK assassination? I heard about this. Was it, was this Trump who did this? Trump sanctioned it as yeah. the president. Um, but the CIA and the FBI asked that like 400 or so be withheld for national security reasons. Right. Ooh, so the problem here is that you're throwing more feckin' leaves onto the fire for yeah. the conspiracy theorists by holding Ooh. this stuff back. I was when, when I heard that this was happening, that they were releasing these JFK papers, I was imagining like Donald Trump calling a press conference and he slowly and somberly walks up to the podium, pulls out an envelope, a brown envelope, holds it above his head, puts it down, opens it up, pulls out a piece of paper and turns it around and says... JFK, just fucking kidding. And he backs out of the room. He backs out of the room, flipping people off while Kid Rock plays over the, over the speakers. And then he just exits. Yeah, well, I don't know if that happened. <laughs> I didn't actually check. Um, perhaps. Did So who do you think killed JFK? Uh, uh, James Franco. I've seen that Hulu thing, and it was James Franco. Oh, right. 18, the, the one based on the Stephen King book? Yeah, yeah, the Hulu. Uh, yeah. So it was James, my, my money's on James Franco. Okay. Who do you think did uh, the two guys on the grassy knoll? Harvey. Well, one man. <laughs> one guy on the grassy knoll. <laughs> and it wasn't the grassy knoll. It was in the feckin' book. He was in the tower. I the seen the, the, I seen the Hulu thing. It was, what? I don't know what you're talking about. There was a, there was a Hulu thing based off the Stephen okay, King yeah, novel yeah, where yeah, they yeah. talk about that. But um, wasn't there, wasn't there like, the, the thing was there was the tower and then there was the grassy knoll. Yeah, but the grassy knoll is the conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> the, book, the book building is where it actually happened and it was Harvey Lee Oswald and then he got mm-hmm. shot by someone two days later, mm-hmm. which is why he allowed a, Actually, one of the things revealed in the in the papers is that um, J. Edgar Hoover, the leader of the FBI, was like, oh man, why did they kill him? No one's ever going to believe anything we ever say about this now. <laughs> <laughs> which is true. It, it is true, just, yeah. It's like, um, there is no conspiracy here, people. Yeah, <laughs> Honest yeah. to Christ. Yeah. It was a tragedy. Like, as, as we mentioned back in Teddy Roosevelt's days, presidents used to get shot all the time. Mm. And it's only because the security system has gotten 
gotten so good now that they're they're a lot safer. But like yeah. Ronald Reagan got shot by a crazy guy who was trying to 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 be friends with Jodie Foster, mm. just because this Harvey Oswald guy was a bit of a freak and like talking about communism and stuff. That's you know that doesn't mean he still wasn't capable of picking up a gun and shooting them. Ah, mm. oh, conspiracy theories they just drive me nuts. We should do an episode on conspiracy theories at some point. I don't know if I'd be able to keep calm at all. No, <laughs> it would just be like a, a frothing at the mouth against conspiracy theories. <laughs> I would get as riled up as the conspiracy theorists do against conspiracy theories. So Richie. Do you know who likes conspiracy theories? Who likes conspiracy theories? The alt-right. The alt-right? Steve, what am the alt-right? I don't know. Let's go to a pre-recorded interview. (laughs) Good stuff. I got my really professional notes here. The first bullet point on the notes is, hello, Joe. So I I thought we could start with that. Just in case you forget. Yeah. Hello, Joe. Uh, Afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So you like the way I said hello there, as opposed to, like, as if we were just in silence the whole way up. And I didn't actually have small talk with you earlier when I met you downstairs. (laughs) Because if you wanted to keep it legit, that's what we do. (laughs) I wouldn't say a word. Like, save the chemistry for in front of the microphones. Well, see, as soon as you press record, my chemistry disappears. So there's nothing we can do about that. (laughs) We talked about how good your voice is. Have you done a podcast before, radio stuff I have done, yeah. Actually, we're thinking about setting up one at Hope Not Hate. Um, oh seriously just because everyone else in the world has one have you heard of what on politics <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're trying to we're going to try and steal the market yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you're, set, you're going to set up a well, we're, looking, we're looking at it we've got um, we're just I mean we'll probably just do kind of interviews yeah. kind of probably quite stale interviews around the far right and things right. like that kind of right. academics and stuff yeah. and then hopefully try and juice it up a little bit with something slightly more interesting but we haven't quite worked it out yet beyond yeah. oh neither neither have, neither have we don't <laughs> let that actually, I noticed yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <I'm not> <laughs> we're still trying to figure this out yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're getting there we're getting there so you're Dr. Joe Mulhall doctor so I'm trying to get more doctors on the show I feel like we can just c- capitalise on your, your uh, legitimacy you're welcome to it yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you're welcome to it uh, but you're a senior researcher at Hope Not Hate um, do you want to just do a quick one, two sentences about what Hope Not Hate is? Yeah, sure. Uh, Hope Not Hate's the UK's largest anti-racism, anti-fascism organisation. Cool. It's been around for about 14 years. It's originally the campaign arm of a anti-fascist organisation, which goes back about 50 odd years. Oh, wow. And we've got two sides. One is research and intelligence work mm-hmm. on the far right and hate groups more generally. Mm-hmm. So we also do Islamist groups as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other side is community organising, political campaigning, right. and education. That's cool. That's that's really succinct. I've done it before. <laughs> yeah, I still I still struggle trying to explain this stupid little podcast to my mother. So you're, you're doing you're doing just great. So this is going to be our Halloween episode. <laughs> it's coming out on Halloween Day, and prior to that's why I you think, made us all dress up. That's yeah. That's yeah. I forgot it's an audio medium, but I'm dressed as a as a spooky ghost. <laughs> yeah, I me mean, as a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we I asked Steve what he thought the scariest political subject was. And without missing a beat, he said alt-right. And so we did our little bit of research and we discovered the alt-right report that um, you guys worked on. Um, crazy good detailed report. Oh, um, I didn't realise it was 128 pages until I tried printing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but double-sided. It, yeah, exactly. But I, I, am I right in saying it's probably one of the most definitive um, reports in more recent times on, done on the alt-right? Yeah, I mean, at the time of publishing, we think it's the, the largest thing that's been produced on it. I mean, there has been one book that's just come out recently, but it's mm-hmm. very much purely focuses on America. Right, right, yeah. So in terms of, as an international movement, I think it's the largest thing that's been done as yet. For sure, for sure. So the best person to talk to about this stuff, we feel. Uh, one-off, maybe. Oh, <laughs> the humility, the yeah. humility. Yes. <laughs> yes, there we go, there we go. No. So generally on this show, uh, when we when we try to dissect the subject, we ask, what am, whatever. So I'm going to ask you instead of Steve, what am the alt-right? So could you just give us like, General terms, soft introduction, what are we talking about here? Yeah, sure. I mean, the alt-right is a international, transnational, far-right movement. Mm -hmm. Its focus is primarily, or the notion it's built on is that 
white men, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes Christian but not always, white men are under threat and facing threat from what they would perceive as left-wing progressive cultural hegemony or societal pressure and power, right. using things like political correctness to essentially undermine, undermine the rights of white men. Mm-hmm. And it's a genuinely international movement that organises from around the world. It's a primarily online movement, though it has increasingly got offline outlets. Mm-hmm. It is a scarily young movement. Mm. You know, a huge amount of these activists are in their 20s and 30s. Really? Um, which is really, really interesting in the sense that it manages to mobilise yeah. so many people. And the other yeah, thing I thought it, our generation was really lazy. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe that's why it's online. <laughs> um, and then the other aspect of it is, is uh, so it's young, but it's also primarily anonymous as well. I mean, right. one of the things we always say about that report is it profiles, you know, dozens and dozens of people that are across the world who are in this movement. And in some senses, they're atypical because we know who they are. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you look at the statistics in terms of the, the websites that they're looking at, the, web, the forums they're using, we're talking tens of thousands of people often. Right. Some, some of them get even more than that. And most of them are completely anonymous. So it's this kind of peculiar modern far-right movement that right. rehashes old far-right ideas, right. but uses thoroughly modern means to get them out there. And so it's young and it's it's anonymous and it's really difficult to track in that sense. Do you think because it's anonymous, it, that anonymity is such a big part of it, does that kind of nullify some of their power? The fact that there's not uh, like a tangible identity behind it, does that kind of mean, oh, sure, it's... It's old internet forum stuff, you know what I mean? They're just shouting amongst themselves. Is there no real danger to them because they've no real identity online? In one sense, of course, it hampers in a certain aspect. So if you don't come offline in terms of affecting the real world, it's sometimes more difficult. But actually, no. I mean, generally, I would say it it maintains its potency and danger. And it's because the way this movement is set up and the ideas that it's built upon are... Not, I mean, they are traditional far-right ideas, but they're based on culture, right? And they're based on changing society through culture. They're not based on, say, setting up a political party, standing in elections and winning. That's not how they see themselves changing the world. Right. They see themselves about changing culture, and they can do huge amounts of that online. Right. Uh, the way they organise and their act, the way their activism works is about attempting, as they would argue, to expand what they call the Overton window, the window of acceptable debate in society. And so they see that they're trolling online, while it all seems very kind of juvenile from the outside, Mm. is about expanding what people can talk about and the acceptability of some of these ideas. And so the anonymity there allows people to do it from all over the world, and and it's actually a strength in that sense. Ah, okay. So So the the rationale being it's it's like elastic, but the elastic loosens and loosens every time you kind of push it and push it. And Yeah, I I think that's fair, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, okay, all right. Because I, th- I was taking some solace in the fact that they're all, oh, they're all... <laughs> no, I mean, in one sense, right, I mean, it would be terrifying if they were... Uh, I mean, in one sense, what we're seeing now with some of the demonstrations we've seen in America mm. in, in the kind of the last year is a confidence of the movement that is people feeling that there is enough of them to come out from behind their computers and, and stand on the street. So in one sense, those demonstrations, even if some of them have been disastrous for them, mm. they are articulations of the confidence of the movement that says we can come out. But of course, there has always been these small little groups that have had meetings for quite a number of years now, etc. But now it's about uh, the kind of the coming offline thing is, is a kind of a relatively scary aspect of it. Yeah, terrifying. We've <laughs> yeah. seen the results of it and everything. Yeah. Uh, when I was looking through the report, um, you made a distinction between alt-right and alt-light. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit, because that's something I wasn't aware of up until reading the report. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a really important distinction, right? right. I mean, we talk about it, I hope not hate, we talk about the alternative right as a broad far-right movement. Mm-hmm. And within it, we have the the more, more hardcore alt-right and the less hardcore, but in some sense, it's more dangerous alt-light. And essentially, 
both sides of the movement, the whole of the movement, agree on a number of things. They agree on the problem, mm. as they would see it, this kind of left-wing societal culture, right. which oppresses men, which uh, vaults for women, gay people, minority groups. Right. They despise the movements behind them, so feminism, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement. So they all agree that this is the problem, that society is, and kind of a modernist globalist society is wrong. Right. We have to f- destroy it. On that, they're in agreement. The difference comes around what they see as the way to fix that. And in one sense, the dividing line here is race versus culture. So the more hardcore alt-right see this those things as a threat to racial identity, to their people, to the white person. Whereas the alt-light would much more perceive it as a threat to the West or Western culture. So we might describe one as kind of racial nationalist and one as Western chauvinist. Now, of course... The moderate end, in one sense, has much more influence because Mm -hmm. of that. It has much more impact on the mainstream. And also a huge amount of them legitimise the ideas of the more extreme alt-right. And so it's very much a fluid thing that works across. In some ways, you see people moving from the more moderate end through to the more extreme end. And then you see ideas going the other way as well. Right. But... So those kind a of, lot of synergy happening yeah, in the alt right. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. And so that's I mean race versus culture. The other one actually is well, some of the other one is attitude towards homosexuality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, on one end, the alt right is much more hard line. It's there should be no gay people. We should stop all those things. Mm-hmm. On the more moderate end, sometimes I mean there are famous kind of people like Milo Yiannopoulos who is who's a gay man mm-hmm. married, and within those movements there is much more tolerance of homosexuality mm-hmm. on the on the alt light end. And part of it is they see it as you know they don't like Islam, they don't like Muslims. Muslims supposedly all hate gay people, so mm-hmm. as a result they can be you know holding up and defending gay people is part of their anti-Muslim strategy. So yeah, I actually found a headline from Milo. Um, the headline was "Gay rights have made us dumber. It's time to get back in the closet." Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, the problem is, is the problem with because the whole movement is laced with this weird irony, right? right? It's central to it, so you kind of you never know what to take seriously and what not, and a huge amount of what they say is complete nonsense. Yeah, um, I, th- I find that so confusing as well because as I was doing my research, there was so much of it. Like, I feel is this satire? This could easily be satire. Is this yeah, a sketch? Yeah. Or to, or, but no, there's legitimacy to it. But how much of it then is trolling, and how much of it is truth? And the blur, the lines between those seem so blurry at times that I could barely comprehend. But then they want them to be blurry, right? And right. this is there's some really interesting research on this about why they, you know, the use of irony. And what it is is it allows lots of them to say things they believe under the defence of, well, hey, I'm only joking, right? Right, yeah. So then they can say things that are more extreme than they would like to. And when challenged upon it and saying, you can't take a joke, calm down. So quite often it's a veneer that they use to kind of cover up their true feelings. Right. Um, so, but, so, but everything, and, it's, and partly it then creates this really weird internal structure in the movement which is obsessed with its own jokes it's really internal it's like a little clique yeah and those ironized jokes are really important for them you know um and so they can joke about the holocaust as far as they're concerned you know they can make like you know joke about the holocaust even on the moderate end and then say hey you know come on we're only joking there but while similar while doing that they're making it more acceptable to joke about the holocaust right, right. so my god so i want to touch a little bit on the going undercover aspect of your report so a big part of that research was you sent an operative undercover for a year was it yeah close yeah, to a year. year yeah yeah um something deep undercover to infiltrate the alt-right so this is this is like all primary research you're doing could you talk a little bit about that process how that worked and like what it was like to send someone in like that what dangers they faced and yeah sure i mean a big part of our work is uh using infiltration i mean it's kind of that's so was, cool well <laughs> it's cool yeah i mean that's, i'm glad you said that wait are you infiltrating what on politics right now <laughs> yeah, yeah well i'm here i've got a, cam- a button camera on now filming you um well no a big part of what we do, i mean it's funny actually in america that we, everyone we spoke to had all these massive ethical concerns but um, um really? well, I mean, we do too we take the ethics very seriously of course 
course. But, um, well, the reason we do it is partly because a lot of these far-right movements we look at, both in the UK and internationally, there's mm. a huge difference between what they say publicly and what they do in private. Mm. Uh, we, you know, front of house and back of house. And there's only so much you can glean from watching them or listening to what they publish or write. And we have to get inside to find out what they're actually thinking. But mm. also in terms of something like the alt-right, it was really important as a relatively newish movement mm-hmm. that was mobilising and growing. It was really important to us to find out how they're organising, what are they planning, uh, how how they're linked, what are they doing. So as we always do in those situations, uh, in this case, I mean, some of what we do is we'll turn people who are already inside. In this case, Patrick uh, came to us mm-hmm. and he came to us to, tr- to do some photography and he, he came over from Sweden. And you upsold him. And we did a little bit, yeah. I, mean, I, felt, I felt a bit guilty saying kind of, uh, I said, actually, that sounds wonderful. Maybe we could try something yeah, else. Maybe. Think like pictures, but maybe instead of taking them from a distance, you could be like using a, your button on yeah, your shirt. It's a significantly yeah. smaller camera. You wear on your nipples and you go inside the building. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what, absolute credit to Patrick was, uh, kind of, he instantly said yes. I mean, sometimes you obviously, the, the, the natural reaction is to go, no, at all no, <laughs> yeah. uh, no I won't do that but yeah. he he kind of instantly said yes I mean interested in it did he already have his own spy gear no 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 <laughs> uh, I, I would have been worried if he did if he if he opened up a suitcase with it all in there oh I'm always wearing a yeah. wire <laughs> yeah he shows me me on camera no um <laughs> No, he didn't. We, we, we kind of had to sort all that out for him. And then, you know, we go through the stage of finding what we were interested in. And with Patrick, it was actually the, the project that it ended up was not where we started, really. We were we were interested in a, a group called the London Forum in the UK. Yes. Which is a far right think tank, very traditional in many senses, doesn't even have a website. But what it, this sort of group was doing was bringing in people from all over the world to speak in London. And of course, we weren't very happy about that. Right. And generally speaking, the British far right is very splintered at the moment. It's very kind of divided. Now, as is always, you know, the British far right kind of goes through peaks and troughs. It unites and becomes a real danger. Then it splits and fragments. Mm-hmm. Then it unites again and becomes a danger. And we're going through a stage now where it's really split. And what oh. I hope not hate, we're trying, we've always tried to do is make sure it doesn't unite. Yeah. And the London Forum seemed to be a place where that was possible. They were bringing in people from all across the spectrum, getting in the maroon together, and, and we wanted to find out what was going on. So originally we were asking Patrick to do that, to go yeah. into the forum and to help us find out what was going on in there. And then once we were in, it just got a bit scary, a bit quicker, really. Um, <laughs> it became clear quite how well connected these people were. Right. Um, it wasn't just, you know, we knew they were having some important speakers, but all of a sudden when we were asking, you know, getting Patrick to ask, you know, who do you know, etc. It was everyone. It was all the big names. Wow. And then we decided we had to expand the project. We had to go further and we had to try and get international. And how did he feel about that? He once he was excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of he had co- the buzz. He, he was he was hooked. He yeah. was James Bond at that point. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. But you know, he was also he was incredibly good at it as well. Yeah. You know, some people just you know some people can't do it. And, and did, it, did did was there no screening process? Like he was just able to infiltrate straight away because no, it no. seems like he did pretty well. Like he got up pretty high. Yeah, he it? got he he did incredibly. There is a screening process. Yeah, right. I mean, um, uh, it's kind of it's my job to make sure he passes the screening process. Wow. Um, and so, and he did, and he did with flying cars. And by the end, ironically, he was doing the screening process really? um, for really? other people. So it was. Oh, I mean, that's so counterintuitive. Which was such a. I assume he's quite a liberal guy. Did then? Yeah, 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 man. Well, I mean, it's, it was hard for Patrick. He's like a. He's really young. He's twenty four. He's gay. He's got a boyfriend. Mm. We were sending him in. I mean, it was in some sides it was really difficult for him. Of course, you know, kind of joking is exciting and stuff, but sending this guy in to listen to really extreme homophobia, really extreme racism and sexism. Yeah. 
everything he's kind of always been against is really, really difficult for yeah, him. Yeah, it's you like know? covering him in jam and throwing him into like a bunch of bees or something. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously he might have preferred that. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> um, so over the course of the year, his year he spent there, like what were some of like the big things you found out that maybe we did, just didn't know about beforehand? Yeah, I mean, it was actually remarkably, for, in, for, for like a one-year thing, it was unbelievably successful. I mean, in the UK, we mapped the whole of this kind of area of the movement we're interested in. Mm-hmm. We found out that kind of everyone had presumed the leader of uh, the London Forum was a guy called Jess Turner, and he is ostensibly the leader, but there was kind of this power behind the throne, a guy called Stead Steadman, a kind of peculiar... Stead Steadman? Stead Steadman. That's I mean, a made-up name, well, Joe, that you just you said. Know what? You, would have, you would have thought it, but... Yeah. Um, we, well, we, we looked, but it does seem to be true. I mean, actually, the, the guy is a remarkable character. He's a, he's a short guy who always dresses in like a full Hitler Youth outfit with shorts on all really? year round. So he wears khaki shorts, khaki shirt, and a little tie. He's like a Odinist. Jesus. Oh, he's, he's a great, I mean, he's, he's very funny to laugh at in that sense. I mean, he's, um, you know, and he, he's a big Odinist, so he does all these. Wait, hold on. Odinists is a thing? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't, I mean, we've got a video of him um, by the Barbican Centre with a big, like, Nordic horn blowing this horn by the Barbican and drinking kind of mead out of the, I mean, it's really, really peculiar. You That's know? bizarre. I just watched Thor Ragnarok last night. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 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 I feel like it's exactly like that, I guess. Yeah, yeah them in shorts. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, so that that was really interesting to find out that there was this guy who had all these contacts in the UK mm-hmm. um, and how all these groups fit together, how all these activists were moving through a number of groups in the UK and how they're all linked. That was really interesting. But the really interesting stuff came in America. Yeah. Patrick, we went out, there's a group in, in the called the Northwest Forum, which is actually modelled on the UK London Forum by a guy called Greg Johnson, who's probably the number two in the American alt-right, really big name. No one had ever photographed this guy in 20 years. Everyone had always been looking for him. No one knew, no one knew what he looked like. No one had anything. any idea what he looked like. Patrick caught him on camera, so we got what? him. So we managed to find him. But then Patrick went to speak on left-wing infiltration at the Northwest Forum <laughs> in Seattle. Oh, there's so many layers to this. <laughs> you know, and I mean, part of it is, of course, you know, you would go, you'd go crazy if you didn't have a bit of fun. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he went and spoke to the group at the Northwest Forum in, in Seattle on left-wing infiltration. He went, yeah. and, and it was, I mean, that was a really extreme, really extreme crowd. There was a group called Cascadia there who were extremely violent. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of was the more dangerous aspect of it. He was going to barbecues with heavily armed people talking about murdering Jews, talking about murdering infiltrators. Oh, um, oh, oh God. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, and, yeah. He, oh, and, and how many times did he wet himself at this barbecue? Well, yeah, right? actually, well, that's what I kind of asked. I was yeah. like, was he okay? And uh, I mean, again, he took, seemed to take it in his stride, but I mean, we will put any precautions we can in place course, in terms yeah. of security and stuff, but... So how big of a gun did you give him? Yeah, <laughs> double barrel shotgun. Yeah, he hid it under his shirt next to the camera. I'm sure it would have fit right in there. Just yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, he was never armed. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, I hasten to add. Yeah, um, yeah. No, no. Uh, so, I mean, that, and that was, and he was, he, he went to a barbecue, a guy called Charles Crafthouse, who's this infamous kind of Nazi potter mm-hmm. who uh, makes these little, like, teapots with. Nazi potter. Potter, yeah, ceramicist. Um, that's, a, that's a Venn diagram I did not know existed. Well, you know, I, I, I have hours of fun on this guy's website. It's um, kind of, he makes little teapots of Hitler's head. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Google it, Google it. I trust, don't buy it, but Google it. Um, I also want to point out that I thought you were saying Nancy Potter and I was trying to think, I don't remember that character from the from the books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, with the Hitler teapot. Yeah. Yeah. Nancy Potter was Harry's uh, really, really uh, racist aunt. <laughs> didn't get a lot of screen time. It went, it went with Voldemort. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and so there, there was kind of that side. And then the other really big one where which were kind of all of our jaws hit the floor was he met a guy called Jason Giorgiani. Mm. I mean, Jason Giorgiani is one of the kind of big players in the movement. He's actually dropped out since... 
And he ran a group called Arctos Books, which was one of the biggest publishing houses in the whole movement. He was also right in there with the creation of altright.com with Richard Spencer. So he was kind of number two there. Mm. Patrick sat down with him in a bar in New York. They were chatting kind of, he'd been kind of introduced through friends or supposed friends. And Jason Giorgiani opens up and says, I had contacts in the White House with the Trump administration via Bannon, Steve Bannon. Right, of course. And everyone's kind of jaw hit the floor. It was this He was a kind of extreme racial nationalist mm. who min- moments before had been talking about how Europe's going to need concentration camps. There's going to be a Hitler on our, Europe's banknotes in 50 years. Next thing he's saying, I have links into the Trump administration. See, that's the thing. That's when it gets to the point of, and this is what I kind of found in the research I was doing. There's this level of stuff that you can laugh at. Like there's, there's all of these things that you can find, use your own ideology to find humor in. And then you'll read something that slaps you right in the face and makes you question everything that came before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one minute you're laughing at a guy in shorts drinking out of a horn at the Barbican. <laughs> and the next minute there's a kind of a Nazi saying he's going to, uh, he's got links into the White House. And yeah, it gets a bit real, you know, yeah. especially for Patrick. Is that is that believable? Like you, you, it could be verified that he actually, he's not just trying to boast at a bar. Well, I mean, well, this is, well, this is the big question we had to ask. I mean, the White House denied it. Of course. Um, Jason Giorgiani confirmed it to the New York Times. Of course, we, we, I mean, it, we couldn't back it up in the sense that we didn't go, when we spoke to the New York Times and we published with them, mm-hmm. we didn't say, uh, we can 100% stand this up. We All we could ever say was that he claimed it, right, uh, right. which yeah. he had. And then sure. when they asked him again, uh, was it likely? I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that someone like Giorgiani would have links with someone like Bannon. I mean, this, yeah. as I say, these worlds kind of overlap. So it wasn't very inconceivable. Yeah. Um, could he have been bragging yet? Yeah, possibly so. I mean, he's lost his job, so if he did, uh, it was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he earned, like, big notable things. I'm, I'm sure there's just, like, hundreds, really, over the course of a year. Yeah, I mean, what I would come in, of course, well, Patrick went to Charlottesville as well. Of course, yeah. So Pat- oh, God. Patrick went to the demo in Charlottesville, and, uh, and that was kind of harrowing. We were the project was coming to an end, and we, and we had this feeling that something was going to happen in Charlottesville. We'd been monitoring this really closely, and really? it seemed really clear that it was going to be important. So we sent Patrick and we sent a team as well with cameras as well mm-hmm. from the outside. And he went along. I mean, unfortunately he got pepper sprayed by uh, Antifa. Yeah, but by, <laughs> so he stepped, by, by counter protesters. Yeah, counter, he kind of stepped out and a, and a kind of middle-aged woman just sprayed him in the face. Tell, tell me this, which hurt worse, the, the mace or the irony? <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I could, he kind of, he was ringing up afterwards and I was trying not to laugh too much. But um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you know, we I take his, his safety very seriously, but that was yeah. amusing, obviously. Of um, course, yeah. And, uh, I mean, of course, the day, of course, then ended up being much less amusing. Uh, and Patrick, unfortunately, was there when the car hit and all those sorts of things. Oh, no. um, so it, it was it was a, one of those days where kind of it all got a bit real, really. Of course. You know, it was. And so you guys, you guys say that you were monitoring, you've seen it coming. Did you think it would be like an actual street violent clash that, you, that it turned out to be? Yeah, I mean, we pretty, pretty much were expecting it. We'd been watching these movements and we'd been going to lots of demonstrations all over the world, um, in Europe and North America for, for a long time. And it was very clear it was something was coming, especially in America. Uh, you kind of had this cumulative effect of counter-demonstrators ramping up the tension and, of course, the alt-right ramping up the tension. These people are heavily militarised. There's guns everywhere. These people turn up looking like they're ready for war. Mm. And, of course, it's an absolute tragedy what happened, but it wasn't a surprise. You know, right. I mean, by the time that we, uh, Charlottesville had come around, um, I mean, we we're always surprised when there's not more violence at these things because really? just uh, just the people involved, the people involved are extremely violent. They come armed. You know, it's, it was always a matter of time, unfortunately, that something this tragic happened. So what happened in Charlottesville, this is an event where it stops being localised to forums and starts bleeding into real world with very real world consequences. Can you see this happening more 
happening less because of the exposure to Charlottesville happened? Like, what's the trajectory for, for these kind of events? The alt right itself is t- uh, kind of torn over what, what it meant. Right. Some people think it was really great in the sense that it, it showed them to be, you know, they were attacked and they had this great day and they were unified. Others thought it was disastrous because of what they would call the optics, what it looked like and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Um, I think, it, I don't think it's the end of anything. I mean, mm-hmm. in one sense, it was like a landmark in the direction that the movement's headed. Right. I think we're going to continue to see demonstrations. We've seen demonstrations since. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things will continue to happen. I mean, the real effect is I think it's solidified the movement and got rid of the more moderate end in some ways. Right. While, of course, you have these, as we talk about, these alt-light people that legitimise this violence. You've got people like Gavin McInnes, who set up Vice and is, is now off much, much more to the right. Mm-hmm. He kind of, would, for a long time, was talking about, you've got to smash anti-fascists, you've got to hit them, you've got to you know throw bricks at them, you've got to do all this violence. And then he steps back after Charlottesville and says, well, well, we don't like violence. So yeah. you get this kind of contradiction. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those more moderate people, or supposedly moderate people, saw Charlottesville as a line where they said, okay, we can't have anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. So it has caught off, you know, split off the movement and it has been, a, I mean, it was a movement that was splitting anyway, but it mm-hmm. has made that more definitive. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the hardcore people, uh, for them, it's just the mission. They now have this group of committed activists that are kind of going through this supposed war, you know. Christ. Um, and speaking of like that split and the, the solidification of maybe the more extreme end of the spectrum, do you feel like, is there any engaging with them on like a, so the whole point of this podcast was me learning and getting informed so I can engage in good, healthy political discourse, particularly if I came across people I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And because when I was living in America, it, it was kind of happening more and more. But if I were to encounter one of these people, do you feel like there is a, a, a level of healthy discourse that can occur or our ideologies are just too far apart and it can't really happen in any sort of healthy or beneficial way? It's a really interesting question, right? I mean, I hope not hate the whole, the whole model the organisation's built on, right, is in terms of normal people that have ideas we, we would disagree with, we want to engage, right? We want to, that's why we have the community organising team that goes into, in the UK, communities that are traditionally voted BMP or now, you know, vote UKIP. And that's about engaging and saying, look, we understand you're angry. We understand in many cases you have legitimate concerns, but you might be articulating them in ways that we, we disagree with and we want to engage and we want to help and we want to, mm-hmm. we understand you're angry and powerless and we want to help. On the other side of that, there are those people that are propagating views and that are heavily ideological. And there's only so much time you can spend talking to those people. In one sense, our job is to marginalise them. It's to depower them. It's about uh, getting them off the platforms. It's about reducing their influence on society. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, you know, counter-narrative projects that spend huge amounts of time speaking to these people. And we, of course, you know, we have brought people out of these movements. If people come to us, we, of course, will engage with them. But really, I mean, I mean, in one sense, it's a matter of resources. There, there are There is a huge difference between people that have certain sympathies and you know, racist views that we think that we can speak to and engage with. But when you're talking about some of these people that are wearing armour, have machine guns and are on the streets of Charlottesville, um, I think our time and effort is probably better spent in that sense, attempting to mitigate the influence they're having on society, mm-hmm. the damage they're causing, the harm they're causing. You know, and of course, if they, you know, uh, and part of the problem is, is they use this our notion of not people, you know, being ostracised and not being engaged with. So you, we don't want to be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. But there's only so much you go, some of the things that, you know, how, how are you going to debate with a Holocaust denier, for example, it's not a debate. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so when, when things like, um, when Hillary Clinton called the outright movement deplorable, you feel like that's like a net good thing. Like that's a person in a position of power and authority making a call that 
like is is, that, is or is that again galvanizing more and solidifying their resolve and making them even tougher? Like what's when something like that? Happens yeah, I mean, I'm level? not. I'm not sure. I mean, the, I mean, obviously they took that as a badge of honor, the deplorable stuff, the deplorable, and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Um, in one sense, she used it in a very broad term. Again, she talked like a whole group of people. She was talking about Trump, Trump voters in, it, in, in a more general sense, and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff is probably unhelpful. As I say, you know, uh, we don't want to push these people even further to the right. Mm-hmm. Um, Generally speaking, I think kind of just generally hurling insults is, is probably not very effective or helpful anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, talk about them as dangerous. Talk about them as unacceptable or, or say that they shouldn't be engaged, they shouldn't be offered space in the public debate, whatever you... Generally calling them deplorables probably isn't very helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a short laugh and, and then they'll probably put it on their T-shirt next week. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it'll just become another meme on 4chan or exactly. something like that. Exactly, yeah. That's kind of how it, how it tends to work. Um, taking the step back, I guess, to a more like broader spectrum, what are the main differences between what's happening here, like in the UK and Europe as a whole, and what's happening in America and are there other pockets elsewhere? Like Steve and I were both Irish and are there any movements happening in Ireland or like where, where else is this, is this stuff unfolding? You have got a group in Ireland. Really? Um, there was a event in Dublin recently. Uh-huh. Um, some videos have just been released. There was a racial nationalist called Jared Taylor from the American Renaissance, who's one of the big players in the alt-right now, very close to Richard Spencer. He spoke in Dublin alongside a Scottish vlogger called Millennial Woes, uh-huh. uh, who's called real name Colin Robertson, who's a, a probably the biggest British uh, alt-right player. And so they were invited into a Dublin thing. Um, there is now Generation Identity. The European Identitarian Movement has launched uh, with a Britain and Great or UK and Ireland branch. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things organising in Ireland and the UK. Generally, in terms of differences, um, in one sense, a lot of the ideas that the Americans are based off have come from Europe. You know, they're based in European far-right thought. Oh, all right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is actually the thing we always say to the Americans is, you know, um, you know, we've been, had a lot of these problems for a long time. I mean, in terms of these ideas about changing through culture, what, you know, ideal, essentially white identity politics, these ideas date back to the 19, late 1960s in France, um, mm-hmm. European far-right philosophers. Uh, I won't bore you, but like, um, <laughs> you know, so we've had movements like the ident- identitarians in Europe for... Uh, for, you know, 10, 15 years in some yeah. senses. So we have those street, and those movements are very active and those movements are offline. Mm-hmm. In America, the alt-right has traditionally, as I say, been a far more online movement. And what's really interesting is we're seeing this convergence between the two. We're seeing these links between European identitarian groups and explicitly American alt-right groups. Mm-hmm. And kind of they both like each other for different reasons. The Americans really like that these guys are active in Europe. They're on the streets. You know, uh, the Generation Identity dropped a banner off Westminster Bridge a few days ago. Um, but what, they, did, what did the banner say? It said, stop Islamization. Oh. Generation Identity. It's not even very witty, is it? No, well, they're not the most interesting. <laughs> witty people. A nice looking banner. Yeah. Give them that. They need to get like a good solid creative team and work on their branding. They, well, they, actually, the branding's amazing. That's what's so scary. The website's great. Oh, really? Yeah. It's is, really, it, is it mobile responsive and everything? Yeah, it's, it's like, it's actually, unfortunately, really good. Uh, the ideas are <laughs> repugnant, but the website's really well put together. If like... Uh, if they, like if they're using Squarespace or something like that, the Squarespace they wouldn't have the the, the authority to just like axe something no. like that happen. Well, like, it's a huge debate around what responsibility the platforms have in these sorts yeah. of things. I mean, I w- oh, they won't be using Squarespace. I mean, the website is being created by a website designer. They've right. got the you know. So I mean, they've, yeah. they're probably hosting it. They'll host it through some Russian site. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Richie's just fishing for the Squarespace sponsorship. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this is the only podcast that doesn't have it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean the. I don't think Square. I mean, Squarespace might. Most most companies wouldn't. They would talk around, you know, freedom of speech, etc. Yeah, yeah. In terms of whether or not they should pull them. I mean, in mm-hmm. the wake of Charlottesville, companies have stepped up a bit more and mm-hmm. been a bit more proactive in that. But for years, we've been banging on the door of that and had very little luck. I mean, it's, yeah, it just takes a it takes a tragedy to motivate sometimes. And what do you think, Joe, about the 
like the people who would say, oh, you are actually clamping down on free speech by by shutting down these groups. Yeah, I mean, I think it's bollocks. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, you're allowed to swear as much as you oh, want. Right, that, um, it's part of our brand, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, the problem I have, uh, yeah, the free speech thing, there, there's, I think there's a mis- huge, especially with the alt-right. I've just come back from America spoke at Free Speech Week in Berkeley, which was events, yeah. set of events Milo Yiannopoulos organised. And the thing that annoys me about it is, is they, they fundamentally misunderstand their right to say whatever they want, which they have, mm-hmm. with their right to say it wherever they want, right? which, of course, you don't have. You can't just walk into the House of Parliament and demand to speak. And so you don't, I don't see why they have to con- demand to be on a private platform. You know, yeah. Twitter, Twitter's a private platform, and if Twitter doesn't want them there, I see no reason why that's a curtailment of their freedom of speech. They can stand on a corner and shout their nonsense. Mm-hmm. So I don't buy it, actually. I mean, there's a, there's a whole load of reasons. In one sense, of course, they don't, or they also don't believe in freedom of speech themselves. They, many of these people use it as an absolute tool. It's not... Um, it's not like they believe it in a universal sense. Right. I mean, even Milo himself, who had free speech at Berkeley, free speech week, spoke at an event in uh, New Mexico where he turns around and says, you know, free speech for everyone, but I'm not quite sure about Muslims. So, you know, <laughs> this is so bizarre. So you turn around and kind of go, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure I buy it. So in that sense, you know, I don't see why a university has an obligation to spend half a million pounds to let Richard Spencer speak in Florida last week. I mean, he has his right to say whatever he wants. You know, Milo has his right to publish with Simon, uh, who, you know, his book, but he doesn't have a right to publish it with Simon and Schuster in the same way David Irving, when St. Martin's dropped him, uh, he still had a right to publish that book, mm-hmm. right? But St. Martin's didn't have to publish it. It's not a curtailment of his freedom of speech to say no. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we'd all get to speak where we want. So I don't, I don't buy the argument, actually. I think it's something they use. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, one thing, one, one thing Steve and I wanted to know, because you, you've got more exposure to the alt-right than, than we, we've ever had. Uh, what would their description of us be like as, as like are we just liberal snowflakes like if they were in this room now like how how would they view our podcast yeah i mean they would see they would see you guys as kind of well part of the problem yeah part of the liberal metropolitan elite um you've got nice trainers on you're working <laughs> in central london um you've got a beard you probably train yeah, i'm flat. wearing slippers oh, just yeah. for the record <laughs> okay uh, so am i no um, <laughs> you know, it's very comfy uh, here uh, you know you probably drink flat whites you know they would see you as part of the liberal metropolitan elite that's progressive and part of this kind of cultural problem but mm. wouldn't they like flat white isn't that part of their thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there we go the best joke of the podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they, they would view us as like a threat to, even though like well they would just see you as part of a kind of a, lib- a liberal progressive society that uh, ostracizes them that ignores their problems mm-hmm. that is you know uh, exactly the sort of thing that they wouldn't like that they dislike you know well I think that's very mean don't you Steve no fuck them <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we go exactly, yeah exactly <laughs> So in terms of, again, we always talk about um, political ideology as a spectrum or like a gradient and there's mm-hmm. lots of different shades and hues within it. Where specifically do you draw lines between like your traditional right, someone who'd be, you know, very, very right wing with like at what point on that spectrum does it tip over into alt-right and what point does it start becoming toxic or counterproductive? Like what, what are there any sort of definitive, definitive markers? Like, is there anyone you've encountered who went on a journey, started conservative, got more and more conservative and they just passed the event horizon? Yeah. I mean, actually this is why it's really useful to think of it as kind of alt-right and alt-light mm-hmm. because the alt-right straddles the line between mainstream centre-right American politics mm-hmm. and European politics and goes all the way through to the kind of the far right and then the alt-right start at the far right and go through to the extreme far right. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the difference there is uh, the race versus culture thing stands on that. You know, mm-hmm. you can have a someone on the moderate end of the alt-right, also on the alt-light, sorry, that is 
would 100% argue they're not racist, mm-hmm. that would argue that it's just about culture and it's a bit about identity. And, you know, they would say, you know, and, and they would see themselves as within the realms of acceptable debate. And, in, you know, and, and the really moderate... I'm not racist, but... <laughs> I'm not racist. I've got a black friend. Um, <laughs> You know, or, or even actually, of course, there are people on that side of the spectrum that are are, are not white. You know, I yeah. mean, you know, within the alt light end, you do get people who are not white, mm-hmm. um, and this is about as they see it, a kind of a Western culture, and that's just like a chauvinism rather than a kind of an explicit xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people that you know, some people can engage with. You know, I'm not going to say these people should be no platformed on that moderate end. You know, a lot of people who work for Breitbart, for example, I vehemently disagree with them. I think that you know, I think they're poorly informed idiots, but mm-hmm. um, and I disagree with much of what they say in their worldview but if someone wants to engage with them I'm not going to say no platform those people they're not Nazis right Right. Um, the difference for me I think where it becomes really unacceptable is when you start to to move towards race I mean I think it's all unacceptable but in terms of when they start to talk about um, this is about about whiteness it's about race Mm. that's a real line for me that's when I think we shift from I mean you can be a populist radical right party like UKIP Mm-hmm. For example, I've you know I would I vehemently disagree with them, mm-hmm. but while it has ex- racist, of course, extreme racists in it as a platform, traditionally it isn't about race as such. It's about Britain. It's about you know, the line. You know that was always the difference between them and the BNP, for example, in the UK. And for me, the really unacceptable line is when you shift across and start talking about race. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, or any of it actually. Anything with not just race, but kind of gender and identity like, uh, and uh, LGBT etc. As well, anything that it goes beyond values issues that they have and starts moving towards unchangeable parts of people's identity that they feel are unacceptable. That's yeah. a kind of complete red line there. Just as we start to kind of close out, one thing we want to discuss was in years to come, will we look back on this as a real ideology kind of and study it like we do Nazism or anything else? Um, or is it just a ridiculous anomaly? Well, more than that, is it, is it Nazism with with Twitter is it just like an adaptation yeah. of what of an ideology that was already there yeah I mean in one sense it is an ad- adaptation I mean the way we define it I hope not hate is there's a crossover of a specific type of far right ideas traditionally in Europe called the new right, right? Mm-hmm. and this is people people like de Benoit uh, these kind of French European far right thinkers that have been around since the 60s which is anti-modern a reaction to the kind of 68 generation mm-hmm. reaction against equality democracy uh, and the rights that flow from those gay rights women's rights civil rights etc um, those things have been around for a long time the thing that makes the alt-right the alt-right is it has taken those ideas in many ways and fused them with a thoroughly modern means of operation, what we call kind of online antagonistic communities. Mm -hmm. And these are tactics that anyone can use. The left use them, you know, apolitical people use them. This is hostile online activity, Twitter, you know, organising online, uh, trolling, these sorts of things. And when they combine those with, they try to use those tools to implement those traditional far-right politics, that's what we have as the alt-right. So... In one sense, they, well, I think when we look back on this movement, you know, hopefully once it's disappeared, we won't see it as a ideological powerhouse that created brand new ideas. Um, we'll see it as a, a modern far right movement that used traditional far right ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what makes it really interesting. I guess is that it's one of the first new global transnational far right movements. This mm-hmm. is a movement that has these ideas that aren't just traditional nationalism. For them, it really is global. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a global struggle. It's an international struggle. And so it makes no sense anymore to talk about, say, just the British far right. And then someone else talks about the French. Someone else talks about the American. Mm-hmm. Because this movement mobilizes together. Whether or not, and then it pivots. And it, they all go for the French election, say. Yeah. Then they pivot and they all go for the Austrian election. They pivot and go for Trump. Then they, So 
if you're just sitting there looking and going, well, who are the Brits in this? You know, you end up with these endless newspaper articles saying the French version of the alt-right, you know, doesn't work like that. Right. You know, so in that sense, it will be viewed as, I think, a, a landmark moment in the progression of the, the international far right. The way it operates is scarily international and scarily modern. Yeah. But the idea is, yeah, I mean, I've got plenty of time for people that say, let's just call them Nazis, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, from an academic perspective, it might not work, but I completely get it, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, that's This is all fantastically insightful. Um, usually we try to end on like a happier note. Okay. And as I was thinking about how we would do that with something like the alt right, it it's, it kind of broke my brain. I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I thought it'd be fun to discuss maybe some of the more ridiculous things you came across in your research, maybe some of the hypocrisies that 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 you happened upon, anything particularly just hilarious, like so ridiculous that you can do nothing but laugh. Well, I, well, I mean, it depends, it depends how much you want to laugh at people. But, um, <laughs> quite a lot. Uh, quite a lot. I mean, I, I mean actually, the, the, I, th- I always find that the area that is... Um, I mean, in one sense, it's really disgusting, but it is so ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, uh, the manosphere aspect of this, right? These online movements of uh, men who are railing against the fact that no one will have sex with them. Right? <laughs> oh. And um, and there's a group of them. And this is, there's a guy called Baked Alaska, right? Who's this really peculiar character in America. Oh my God, what a terrible name for a horny guy. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, he's, he's written the only pro-police rap song I've ever heard. Um <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, don't fight the power yeah, yeah, like, don't fight the power like, yeah, um, love the police um, and he uh, they have these things where they uh, they get together right and they have these meme magicians as they call them right, you know, and they sit <laughs> and they sit in their mother's basement coming up with memes right and one of the things and this is God's honest truth right they create this thing called a waifu or waifi right which is a cushion of a woman and I think it's based on some sort of uh, cartoon thing. And so they pick a waifu or waifi, whatever it's called. And then that becomes, you get married to your cushion, right? Which is your woman, right? Okay. And then he talks about this in his book. And then they get him into the basement for the marriage ceremony. They marry them to this cushion. And then they hold him and someone takes the cushion away and burns the cushion. And, what? and lights the cushion. And he goes, why are you burning my waifu? And they say, because you have to realize we have nothing. What? I mean, it's so tragic. What? You like, don't even have a you cushion. You don't even have a cushion to love you. That's how lonely <laughs> it sounds, they are. It sounds, like, it sounds like Fight Club mixed with Wayne's World yeah, or something. It's just horrendous. It's, I mean, it makes my skin crawl. But the idea that they, 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 they literally have to, like, they have this ceremonial thing which says, like, we have so little and so few relationships that, like, we don't even have this teddy. I'm not even sure that's funny. It's so tragic. Um, oh, that's, that's, the, that's just their brand, it seems. It's oh, so yeah, funny. And, and lots of them, they call themselves incels, involuntary celibates. <laughs> What? Oh. <laughs> and then they adopt this. They adopt these things themselves. It's not. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's tragic. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's a dangerous side to it, of course, right? But um, they spend a huge amount of time just sending rape threats to people. But of course, yeah. But but like, do you know? I mean, as well as hating them, it is worth laughing at them. I think. Yeah. I think it's a natural response. Again, like that's what I did during a lot of my research. Like again, I have a bunch of articles here. Yeah. yeah. And I started laughing at them. If I read them, if I read the articles too long, I get very sad. Yeah. yeah but yeah, if I course. just kind of skim them, it's quite funny. Like uh, science proves it. Fat shaming works. Yeah. Which is an article just about how we should just be laughing at fat people because <laughs> it's for their own good. Um, there's no hiring bias against women in tech. They just suck at interviews. <laughs> Uh, birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. Right, like, that's a Milo article, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, nice guy. Yeah, the solution to online harassment is simple: women should log off. <laughs> and it's just like it's just it goes yeah. on and on and on and on. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, aspects of it are are so utterly ridiculous. Like, you know, if you didn't cry, or if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. You know, 
That's it, um, exactly. That's it. I think, and I think we should stop there. Otherwise, I will start crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, indeed. It'd be funny if actually we revealed that we were infiltrating you. We were actually all trying infiltrators. Sent <laughs> into the whole I, I looked into you before I came. Yeah, oh, 29 <laughs> episodes. This is just part of our sting operation. It was. Very long Welcome to the honey pot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Joe. This was this was fantastic. This is this is terrifying, but you know, no, we need to know, stuff. We need to know. I think. Thanks for having me. It was uh, how fun. can people find you? Yeah, so uh, hopenothate.org.uk is our website. We're mm-hmm. on Facebook, Twitter at Hope Not Hate. Um, I'm at Joe Mulhall underscore because I need the followers. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know anything that's fine. Amazing, thank you so much. Nice one. Cheers. Perfect. Um, yeah, cool. So thanks to Dr. Joe Mulhall for that interview. That was amazing. That was really good. He was yeah. really smart. He definitely answered what um the alright. Yeah, and, and, yeah, really, really, and had a nice layer of legitimacy to our show. As well. Just to point out, um, I actually I, I listened. We were as I was listening to it, I realized that I don't speak until like. 20 minutes Yeah, in. where were you for the first part? <laughs> in Dublin, on Skype. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had, you had Skyped in. We recorded that earlier on in London, and so you had Skyped in, so yeah. it's always a little bit harder when there's two people in the room talking, and then yeah. you're because t- I've been in that situation. Yeah. I didn't want, like, I, I didn't want to just be butting in all the time and just, like, disturbing, like, a good, because you were in person, that's the best way to flow the interview. For sure. So, yeah, um, I thought I learned quite a lot about the alt-right. Yeah. Um, terrifying stuff, some yeah. of it. Absolutely terrifying stuff. We did want to say, actually, just that while, like, while we're, talking about the alt-right we are very much talking about the extreme end of the spectrum i know when we first started the podcast we talked about being non-partisan i think we proved that (laughs) it's kind of hard to straddle that line it is as to like liberal (laughs) hippies yeah the point i want to make is that we don't like when we do an episode on the wall on the alt-right for halloween (laughs) because we're pointing out what danger they are yeah we we're not including people who who associate themselves and their political beliefs with the Conservative Party yeah. or, or the Republican Party. Yeah. While there are bad people in those parties, yeah. not everyone that is in, like, you know, you may just have right-wing or centre-right-wing views. And as long as, as long as you're not like, but well, the problem is, is that the alt-right, mm. they are, they are taking it to the next level. They, they are trying to infringe on other people's Right. Yeah. And th- and that's what we're focusing on. Yeah. We're focusing on, on that darkest part of that spectrum, yeah. like the darkest shades and those great that gradient that we spoke about earlier. So while the like the left and right battle all the time, like some people on the left would say that any any concession to the right in terms in allowing them to have debates in ter- like even on economic matters and disagreements mm. about social welfare funding and healthcare funding mm. means that you automatically have to label the other people as enemies. Yeah. We do not agree with no, that. No, that's bullshit. Yeah. You can't do that. That's no way to run a, a, a democratic society. So yeah. But it is okay to make fun of the alt-right because they're a yeah. bunch of fascist thugs. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. That's it. That's it. We just wanted to clarify that. But yeah. that was, I, I absolutely adored that interview. That was, I learned so much from it. Um, yeah. The whole the whole sending someone in undercover like that. There's some scary stuff that, and funny stuff, but yeah. mostly scary stuff that came out of that. Yeah. Dr. Joe, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. Second doctor on the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So we got a lovely email on the Teddy Roosevelt yeah. ep- episode from we an did. American listener. Um yeah. Maria Shoemaker, which is a great name. That's a great name. <laughs> so what did she say in the email? Um, she basically just said that she came onto the podcast after listening to um, either my appearance on Bruce Carlson's podcast. Uh, his my History, You Can Beat Up Your Politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, or him coming onto ours to mm-hmm. talk about the history Synergy. Stuff. Podcast synergy. synergy. Uh, she this just other, sorry, this is the other thing. A little tangent here. When we were talking about the alt-right... And like how they all work together across like online, they rally online across like transnational movements. If we weren't talking about the alt-right, that would be impressive. And it would be a wonderful story of collaboration. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I couldn't help but think when I was editing the podcast and listening back to it, it was like, this sounds like a wonderful story of collaboration. If it was about anything. Yeah, other if than it was like trying to like help kids. Yeah, if it was ra- yeah, if it was rallying under a different, like the, the way that they can like, 
in in like quite discreetly rally people of different like from different countries. Well, it's and actually like, worth mentioning Steve Bannon, who who got involved with Breitbart and, and brought it up to the level that it is now. Yeah, um, he learned about that online community by when he was working for Blizzard, I think. Blizzard? Yeah. The video games company? Well, he was working for a company that was involved with them that was like mining. It was They were doing the, like the online mining thing where they like go into the game with like farms of people to try and make money out of it. Oh. I don't really understand. I don't yeah, play yeah. online gaming. But it basically <laughs> just involves hack, like cheating the rules of the game to, to try and make money off it. Okay. Blizzard were ignoring it, but the people who actually wanted to play it like on a legitimate level organized themselves and got active and forced a massive multimedia corporation to change their policies. And Steve Bannon, while he personally lost money because his business was one of the ones hacking it, yeah. he went, huh, oh, these guys, maybe I can use them for my evil nefarious <laughs> deeds. Internet, eh? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he did. Yeah. And he did exactly what you said. So, yeah. um, sorry, sorry for that tangent. I was just, yeah. yeah. So back to Maria. Um, back to, yeah, our she, lovely email. She loved the episode. She, yeah. she is a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt herself. And not only that, but she wanted to point out a, a present American politician, Congresswoman mm-hmm. Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. Oh, okay. She's really young. She's like, well, for a politician, she's yeah. in her mid thirties. And because I'm like in my thirties now as well, anyone in their thirties <laughs> is really young. Um, <laughs> she uh, is still a serving member of the U.S. Armed Forces. Oh, really? She is in the Hawaiian uh, National Reserve. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, what they're called? The Army. Anyway, the Reserve Army. The Reserve Army. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But because America likes fighting wars, they, she also has done two tours of duty in right. Iraq. Okay. So, and but she still is a serving member, and she's a major. And mm-hmm. um, some people are putting her up there as a possible contender for the Democratic nomination for 2020. Really. And so Maria just wanted to point it out to us that she is a badass. Nice. Who is basically bringing the spirit of TR into present politics and yeah, we love, get action yeah exactly that's much better than like those draw boring politicians in their terrible suits and pantsuits so yeah, yeah it's good to see someone out there like kicking ass and yeah let's keep an eye on her maybe like touch back in with with, with, with this what's her name again sorry the politician uh tulsi gabbard yeah let's let's just check in she's really interesting in terms of her identity too as well yeah. she's um i think she's the first female american samoan member of congress really because i guess her dad is like what would be like a native yeah. hawaiian and yeah. then her mother is of European descent, but was a practicing Hindu. And oh, so, wow. and Tulsi took that up in her teenage years and it takes it very seriously now. Wow. Yeah, that's so, cool. That's really interesting. That's really cool. She's a really interesting lady. Yeah, it does, it does, yeah, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's reminding me of Teddy. I'm getting strong Teddy vibes off this lady. There you go. So that's one, that's one where you wanted to point out. Hey, so, wait a second. Your dog's name's Ted. Yeah. Is he named after Teddy Roosevelt? No. No. Oh, okay. I just, I just, I just realized. I would like, there. I would like to do that, and I would like to like retroactively say yes, and yeah. then all my future. You can dogs, on it. I, yeah, okay. I'm gonna wreck on it. All my yeah. future, like my next dog, I want to call him Abe. <laughs> I keep all presidents. All my dogs have been named after presidents. Unfortunately, if I get a female dog, and because they don't have any female American presidents, I'm gonna have to like switch it and like feminize one of the names. Right. Okay. But yeah, like no. What? He he was named. Um, I wanted to call him Dougal. Oh, Dougal's right, a father Ted because yeah. that's a great name for a dog. Dougal's a great but name. But they wouldn't let the parent, my parents wouldn't let me because they said you can't give a dog a two syllable name. He'll get confused. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. I mean, Richard, I get confused sometimes. <laughs> with Richie. That's, that's why I abbreviate to Richie, because I just get confused if there's any more. Well, you are confused, because it's got the same number of syllables. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but the terrible thing is, is that uh, my brother's my brother's girlfriend's sister, she got a cockapoo, which is kind of like a labradoodle, but smaller, mm. and they called him Dougal. Oh, no. And he responds perfectly to his Of course name, he does. Because he's a dog. <laughs> they don't understand. Anyway, yeah. So no. Steve, what's your favorite thing about Maria? Uh, my favorite thing about Maria is that even though her surname is Shoemaker, she doesn't actually make shoes. She is a haberdasher. She's a haberdasher. What's a haberdasher again? They make hats. Ah, uh, no. Isn't it a haberdasher who makes hats? Isn't it? I thought it was something else beginning with M because I know Donal is way into it. Donal's a haberdasher? 
Yeah. Or not. My favorite thing about about her is that she's actually a... I'm going to look it up now. Oh, shit, I don't have internet because yeah, you're in Kildare. <laughs> oh, man. My favorite thing about her is no matter where she goes, she has amazing internet. <laughs> uh, great. So thanks very much for the emails. We do appreciate that. And yeah. uh, if anyone else wants to give us a shout, um, please do. We You can talk to us on the Twitter, mm-hmm. on the Facebook, mm-hmm. on the email. Mm-hmm. All what, at what on politics. Yeah, what on politics at gmail.com is mm-hmm. the email. Um, you can also contact us if you go to our website, whatonpolitics.com. You can leave a little voice message there that if it's witty, funny, or nice, or or, yeah, yeah, informative, no. informative or you're yeah, correcting us, anything yeah, at all, just we'll, want to be in the show. We'll put it on the we'll show. We'll put it on the show. And the other, I have an update on that. So it's a service called SpeakPipe that leaves the voicemail and they recently updated so that you can do it via iOS, like Safari. So it used to be that if you tried to do it on your phone and you're on an iPhone, you couldn't leave a message. You had to download um, an app and do it. But now they've, they've, they've updated it. So you can do that on your phone if you want to know if you have an right. iPhone. So yeah, go ahead. It's in the show notes as well. Is there anything keeping you sane this week? For any uh, new listeners, because I think we'll get a couple of new listeners out of this, we always end the show with uh, a what I'm keeping us sane, where we talk about the non-political stuff in our life that's keeping us sane. So is there anything that's keeping you sane this week? Uh, no, I'm pretty insane this week. <laughs> yeah, nothing at all? Uh, I was re-watching the IT crowd. It's, oh, uh, it's really it's enjoyable. So good. <laughs> it's so good. Are you going to watch Stranger Things? That's out today. Yeah, I, I started watching it yesterday, but then my brother, like, uh, we watched the first episode, like me and my dad and my brother, but then he stood up and he goes, I'm not allowed to watch anymore. Um, my girlfriend found out I was I was watching it and I had to yes. stop. That's yes. the terrible thing about this binge-watching culture. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you're like get tied into watching it with someone else. You may have a different schedule to you and you're in yep. different places. I know, our lives are so hard. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's tough. Life is tough. <laughs> What's keeping you sane? Uh, this place, this place, I'm back, I'm back home in, in Ireland. I'm, I'm in my parents' home. It's out in the middle of nowhere, as evidenced by the complete lack of internet that we've referenced a couple of times now. But it's like the most beautiful place. I slept incredibly well last night because there's just not a single sound. My ma just baked an apple tart. So I'm filled full of apple tart, which I'm converting into podcast energy as we speak. It's just, it, coming back here is like my favorite thing because it just, it just re- re-energizes me. Much in the same way, like you were talking about St. Anne's mm. Park like that kind of thing you just you go you breathe and you just feel great about it so um so breathing that. so breathing basically i also got the new super mario game last <laughs> night, which I, if you see me looking down here it's because the super mario, my switch is in that thing and i just keep looking yeah, at a it subtle hint so ted's out there whining at me to get them the road you're over there looking at your thing so i think we better wrap it up now yeah, if i start going let's go <laughs> <laughs> okay um I'll, I'll say see you even though i'm gonna have to talk to you for a while after this uh, okay bye, bye. <laughs>